as Pastor Rich said, if you are new or visiting, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Um, and, and as he mentioned there at the end, we are as a church in the middle uh, of a sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, in fact, today is week nine of that series, and so uh, we've been in it quite some time now. And if you missed last week, uh, Pastor Chris, he walked us through perhaps the most famous story in all of the Old Testament, uh, that being the story of David and Goliath. And I don't know about you, but I, I thought last week was uh, particularly powerful. Um, I thought it was very insightful into how you and I overcome and fight back against those fears that we face every day. And how we can live a life full of courage if and only if we are rooted and connected to God. In other words, I think he was arguing that our, our knowledge of God is directly tied to our ability to live courageous lives. And so again, if you missed last week, you can go onto our website or onto our podcast and catch up. And I would recommend that you do because I don't think you'll be uh, disappointed. In fact, I think you'll be encouraged. But uh, today we are moving on in the story in the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to be uh, looking at chapters 18 through 20. Uh, but before we dive in, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Uh, I'm going to, in this prayer, just also uh, ask the Lord to um, to be active in Texas. I know that he is. And so I uh, want you to join me in praying. Father, we do just ask, Lord, that you would guide our time this morning. Father, we invite uh, the Holy Spirit's presence here to guide us, to lead us. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would do that. Lord, we lift up Houston and the surrounding areas in Texas, Lord. God, just all the, the devastation and the lost lives and the lost possessions, Lord. We just ask that, uh, God, you uh, would make yourself known there. Lord, that through all these relief efforts that uh, men and women would, uh, in, in just a, a place of hopelessness, find hope. And find hope in you. And so, uh, Father, we do just ask that you uh, would bless them and be with them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so to uh, set, set the stage and the context of kind of where we're at in the story, um, Saul is reigning as Israel's first king. Um, although we saw a few weeks ago that because of his disobedience, because of his sin, he has been rejected by God. In fact, God has already used Samuel, the prophet, to anoint Israel's future king. And, and, and he anointed the man that God wanted all along. You see, Saul was the, the man that the people wanted, but, but the man that God wanted was uh, this little shepherd boy named David. And last week we began to learn a little bit about him. And, and what we saw was is that he is a man who deeply loves God. He's a man who is spiritually sensitive and in tune with what God is doing. He's someone who's willing to take risks. And all of that is in stark contrast to Israel's current king, King Saul. And what we've seen with Saul is that he over and over again proves just how unfit he is to lead Israel. And we'll see that even in a clearer way today. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can go and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And uh, I'm going to do a little bit of reading there. I'll have to do some summarizing uh, as we walk through these stories. And so we'll, we'll walk through what's going on, and then I just want to step back and examine just one of the major themes that we see in these three chapters, uh, that being Jonathan and David's friendship. 
And so if you remember to last week how the story ended, uh, basically, you know, David kills Goliath with the slingshot, then he cuts off his head, and uh, Saul uh, says to his men, um, go and get that boy, I want to talk to him. And so as we come to chapter 18, verse 1, this is what we read. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of of Saul's servants. Okay, so the first thing we see here is that Saul's son Jonathan, after witnessing David kill Goliath, that that after seeing that something in him drew and captured his heart and his affections. And it did it in such a way that he felt bonded and connected to David. And so from this point on, they are going to begin to form a deep relationship and friendship with one another. And we'll say more about that later in the message, but but this right here is just the start, just the beginning. And so after that, we see that Saul takes David into his house, into his courts. Uh, He becomes one of Saul's main men. Uh, In fact, in verse 5, it it says that David was so successful that that, uh, Saul actually sets him up as kind of a, a commander of the army. And we see that the people really like that. They, they trust David in that role. The, the Saul's servants are happy with that. And so as the first five verses of this chapter, things are really good. Everyone's getting along and everyone's happy. But that's not going to last long. And it's, it's not going to last long because David, from this point on, will only grow and increase in popularity and in having success. And what we find out in this next section is that old Saul... Old King Saul, he can't handle that. He can't handle people liking David more than him. And so in verse 6, David, after winning this major victory over the Philistines, uh, we're told that in response, all the women of the, the various cities, they come out and they begin to dance and to sing. And the song that they make up says this, that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, as you can guess, uh, Saul is not a fan of this song. In fact, he feels deeply insulted by it. And so in verse 9, we read this, And Saul eyed David from that day on. The uh, New Living Translation says, From that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Well, from there, things get worse. Saul's jealousy grows and intensifies. And as a result, he, he becomes even more erratic. He becomes more desperate. We read that the next day a harmful spirit came on him, and in a fit of rage, he throws a spear at David to try to kill him. But we're told that David escapes with his life, and in verse 12 it says this, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and he came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David 
for he went out and he came in before them. So Saul sends David out to fight, hoping that perhaps he would get killed in battle. And yet his plan backfires. David continues to be uh, successful as an army commander. And because of that, because of his success, the, the people's love only grows more intense. And so to save time, we'll skip this next section. But basically, Saul, he devises a new plan. He thinks that if, if David marries one of his daughters and, and to prove himself, he has to fight more, that, that again, perhaps he'll get killed. But this plan backfires too. Uh, David does, in fact, end up marrying one of Saul's daughters. And then in verse 28, we read this. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And so in this first chapter, we see that the narrator of the story is contrasting two things. First, as we've already mentioned, we see that the Lord has abandoned Saul and he is instead with David. And we see that Saul's beginning to recognize this and it creates fear and anxiety in him. The second thing we see contrasted is that while Saul grows in this hatred of David, everyone else seems to grow in their love and their admiration for him, including Saul's own children. And so Saul at this point is a very frustrated man. Nothing is working out like he would hope or would want. Well, that brings us to chapter 19. And what we see at the beginning of chapter 19 is that he begins to get real desperate. And he even gets bold. He, he just comes right out and he tells his son Jonathan and his servants that they should kill David. Well, this obviously bothers Jonathan because as we already know, he loves David. They've made a covenant together. And so because of their friendship, because of their relationship, Jonathan warns David and he tells him that my father's trying to kill you. And you can kind of just picture David being like, oh, really, Jonathan? I, I mean, I had no idea. I mean, you know, he chucked a sword or a spear at me the other day, but I thought he had like bad seafood or something, you know, but apparently he wants me dead, you know. And so David, again, realizes Saul's trying to kill him. So he goes into hiding. And we're told that Jonathan then goes back before his father to appeal to him, to, to try to talk some sense into him. He speaks well of David. He reminds his father of the fact that David saved all of their lives when he killed Goliath. And so he pleads with his father to not do this wicked thing. And so finally Saul is persuaded. He swears in Yahweh's name to his son that he will not kill David. And so because of that, David then returns into Saul's courts. He, he once again is living in Saul's presence. But then war breaks out again. And David is once again sent out to fight. And he is once again successful. And Saul's jealousy once again comes back. And he once again throws a spear at David to kill him. This time David runs away. He, he heads home. Saul immediately sends some men out to get him. Uh, but this time, Saul's daughter, Michael, helps him escape. And it's this story where it involves she has an idol in the house. We're not sure what that's all about or why. It's certainly concerning. But, but either way, David gets out. He, he goes to the city where Samuel is, and he begins to fill him in on what all's going on. And we don't really have, uh, again, time to get into it, but in a kind of crazy, comical, and bizarre story that involves prophets and prophecy and Saul ending up naked for a whole day. 
David escapes. <laughs> you have to read it on your own and, and then ask Pastor Chris what it's talking about. But um, basically, I think the point of the, the story is that the, the Spirit gives David time to get away. And so that brings us to chapter 20. And we see that uh, at this point, because uh, Saul is in hot pursuit, David has to flee the city of Nahoth where Samuel was. And he goes back to Jonathan's house, which is crazy because that means he's gone back to the most dangerous city for him to be in. And we're told that David goes to Jonathan and he tells him once again, your dad is still trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no way, David, there's there's no way, because if he was, he would have told me he he doesn't withhold anything from me. And David's like, no, you don't understand. He he realizes that we are friends. He realizes that you trust me. And and so, no, he wouldn't tell you. And so Jonathan finally believes him. He's like, "Okay, all right. What do you what do you want me to do then? And David's like, well, tomorrow it's the new moon festival and your dad will be expecting me to be at his table. And so when your dad realizes that I'm not there and begins to ask where I'm at, will you please tell him that I've gone home to Bethlehem to sacrifice? And if in that moment he says, oh, OK, well, good, that, that's all right, then, then we'll know that he's not trying to kill me. But if instead he freaks out, if, if instead he gets angry, then we'll know that he's still on Uh, this mission to kill me. And so after that, after they devised this plan, David then reminds Jonathan of the covenant that they made early on in their friendship. And he's like, Jonathan, if you think your dad has a good reason to kill me, then just do it yourself. But if not, then, then Jonathan, I'm begging that you deal kindly with me. And I'm begging that you let me know how your dad responds. And so picking the story up in verse 11, uh, the New Living Translation says this. Come out to the field with me, Jonathan replied. And they went out there together. Then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow or the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and will let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I will let you know. But if he is angry and wants to kill you, May the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so that you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact. Or in other words, the word there is a covenant with David saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm this vow of friendship again for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. So we see Jonathan promised to help David, yet in return, he asked David to help him. He says, David, look, I know that one day you will be king. The Lord will destroy all of your enemies. And and when he does, David, I'm just appealing to you that that you treat me and my family with faithful love, with the love of the Lord. And what he's getting at there is that typically when a new king would come in, particularly from a different line, a different family, they would wipe out the previous uh, king's uh, family members to to keep from having an uprising or something. And he's just saying, David, when that happens, Lord, I'm just begging you as a friend. Do not do that. Don't kill my children. 
And from there, they make another covenant. They reaffirm their love and friendship with one another. And then they devise this plan for how Jonathan will let David know how Saul reacts. And they come up with this clever idea of involving archery and shooting arrows. And, and David uh, then goes and he hides himself. And so the festival starts. And after a few days of Saul realizing that David's not there, he turns to his son Jonathan and he's like, where is he? And Jonathan tells a white lie and he's like, well, he asked if he could go back to Bethlehem and, and I let him go. And upon hearing that, Saul freaks out. He, he curses his son. And you don't quite pick up uh, in the ESV just how abusive and obscene his language is here. But, but in another translation, it says, Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place? Shaming yourself and your mother. And so this is ridiculous. Saul is completely out of control. And if that weren't bad enough, Jonathan again tries to appeal and to talk his dad down and to speak of David's innocence. And, and, and Saul, in a fit of rage, he actually throws a spear at his own son to kill him. And so finally, David or Jonathan, devastated and angry, realizes that his dad is in fact out. To kill David. And you just have to try to put yourself in Jonathan's shoes here. I mean, how much anger and sadness and disappointment would you be feeling in this moment? Your dad has essentially just cussed you out. He, he promised earlier that he would not kill David and yet he's not kept his word. And now he's even to the point of actually trying to take your own life. And again, the, the, the narrator is showing us just how unfit Saul is to lead. This is what happens when people get what they want instead of what God wants. Well, from there, an angry and a heartbroken Jonathan, he gets up and he follows through with his plan to warn David. His original plan was just to communicate by, by firing these arrows, but he's so heartbroken that instead he sends the little boy who's helping him away so that he can speak with David in private. And so in verse 41, we read this. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and he fell on the ground and he bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and he departed and Jonathan went into the city. And so these two friends, they come together and say goodbye. And as far as we're told in scripture, they'll only see each other one more time. And so from this point on, David will be a fugitive. He'll be a man on the run. And we'll get into more of that next week. But I just want to stop here. And again, there are multiple uh, themes and points that we could draw out from these three chapters. But I just was so struck by the fact that at the beginning of 18, we see their friendship. And at the end of 20, we see their friendship. At the beginning of 18, we see them make a covenant. And at the end of 20, we see them renew their covenant. And so uh, I just want to focus on this relationship, this friendship between these two men. And the first thing I want you to know about this dynamic friendship is, is number one, just the importance of friendship. You see, you and I, we were not designed by God to do life alone. 
Now, you see, the fact that we were made in the image of a triune God means that we were made to be in community. We were made to have friendships. You see, the fact that our God is three in one means that he, in his essence, is relational. And again, because we were made in that image, he designed us to need to desire and to be with others. Friendship and relationship are at the very essence of who God is. You and I need friends. They are essential to our lives. And the crazy thing is, is that there's tons of of secular and and even health research that bears this out. In fact, I was I was reading multiple articles this week. And and one of the ones I read said this, that that people who have strong social relationships are less likely to die prematurely than people who are isolated. In fact, according to a 2010 review of research, the effects of social ties on lifespan is twice as strong as that of exercising, and it's equivalent to that of quitting smoking. In other words, having good friends can actually increase your life expectancy. But not only that, the article went on to compare those who reported to being in isolation with those who reported to having lots of friends across uh, the span of their life. And and what they did is they, they used four large studies of hundreds to thousands of people uh, age range from 19 or 12 to 91, and they compared these biomarkers, such things as blood pressure and body mass index and weight circumference and levels of inflammation. And what they found was this, that those, uh, that in those measures of health, that they were worse than people who had weaker social ties. And so, for example, among people in the study who were elderly, they found that a lack of social connections more than doubled the risk of high blood pressure, raising it by 124%. That's crazy. And so they give you a comparison. They say, by comparison, having diabetes raised the risk of high blood pressure by much less, 70%. And so if I'm understanding that correct, it's better to have diabetes and have friends than to not have diabetes and to not have friends. Uh, The article actually went on to say that loneliness even increases your chances of dementia. Uh, Another article I read argued that loneliness and isolation increase your risk of cardiovascular disease, strokes, the progression of Alzheimer's. So in other words, all of that to say, you being isolated, you not having close friendships is actually and practically a significant risk to your health. Again, one even compared it to smoking. As well, there's all of this research that shows how friendships actually improve your psychological health. Friendships help you manage and deal with stress. And this certainly had to be the case with David here. The fact that he had someone to talk to and to to process all of this terrible emotion and stress and fear, no doubt had a profound effect on his psychological stability. And so again, all of that to say that that even secular research has come to understand that you and I are designed for friendships. When God created Adam and Adam was all alone in the garden, it was the first time that God looked at his creation and that he said that something wasn't right, that something wasn't good. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. You see, if you would say to me, Nick, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I would like to make friendships a priority in my life. 
but I'm just too busy. Then I would say to you, you're too busy then. You need to get rid of some other stuff in your life because this must be a priority for the rest of your life. You and I can't afford to not maintain close friendships throughout our entire lives. You see, you don't just need them in high school or in college or as a young adult. You and I need a couple close friends until the day that we die. And look, I I know it's not easy. I know that there are seasons of life which make this more challenging. But what I want you to hear this morning is that this is worth fighting for. This is worth prioritizing. And so this is the first thing that we see, the, the importance, the necessity of friendship. But let's move on to the second thing. And that is the ingredients of friendship. Now, in chapter 18, when we see Jonathan and David meet for the first time, if you remember, it was right after uh, David killed Goliath. And again, verse one says this, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Another translation says there was an immediate bond between them. I think that makes us ask the question, what was it that drew Jonathan to David? I mean, Jonathan was a man of royalty. He was no doubt in a higher social class. Uh, Some have argued that Jonathan was significantly older than David. And so by all accounts, these men shouldn't have been drawn to each other. They, They shouldn't have been friends. And yet, upon seeing David kill Goliath, Jonathan was knit to him. He was bonded to him. And so what was it about that? Well, personally, I think the thing that drew Jonathan to David was their mutual love and devotion to the Lord. In fact, I think you see it as the foundation of their friendship. You see, a couple weeks ago, we skipped chapter 14 in this book, um, but it's this amazing story of Jonathan and his armor bear attacking and defeating the Philistines. And what you see illustrated in that story is that Jonathan is a man who loves and trusts the Lord. And he does to such an extent that he's willing to take incredible risk in battle, just like David. And so I'm sure when he saw this little shepherd boy run out and face Goliath when no one else was, that he instantly realized that they had a common faith. And therefore, there was this connection. You see, at this point in Israel's history, it seems like anyway, Israelites who truly loved and trusted the Lord were few and far between. And so when these two men found each other, there was an instant bond, an instant connection. And it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Four Loves, when talking about friendship. He wrote this. He said, friendship arises out of mere companionship. When two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste, which others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or even burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. I know many of us can relate to that. I can still think of kindergarten realizing me and this little boy named Ryan both had, what, you're interested into space? Me too, you know? And we became friends. That was the basis of our friendship. And so, uh, again, a common... uh, For many of us, our friendships are based on something that we have in common, whether it's a common interest or hobby or even a common outlook on life. 
You see, when I was in high school, I honestly thought I knew what friendship was. I had this group of guys that I was extremely close with. Guys that I honestly thought I would do life with for the rest of my life. But when God got a hold of me at 19 and I, I stopped pursuing the things of this world and I, I stopped enjoying and participating in the things that these guys did, well, at that point, our friendship began to fall apart. You see, in the end, us not having the same outlook on life, uh, what happened was there wasn't much there to sustain our friendship. In fact, I, I begin to realize just how shallow our friendship was. Fortunately, during that time, the Lord provided two really good friends for me. One of them led us in worship this morning, and the other one goes to our sister church, Awaken. And the three of us began a very special friendship that has lasted until this day. And the thing that was so amazing that, that, that caught me off guard was, was, yes, we had similar tastes and interests. But more than that, the three of us love Jesus and are committed to following him. And I think what I've come to realize in my walk with the Lord is that if that is all that you have in common with someone, that that is enough. In fact, I have some friends who literally there is not one thing that we have in common. And I, half the time, I don't even know what they're talking about when they start talking about their hobbies and interests. And yet, because we love Jesus, we get along. We are friends, deep friends. And so, again, that's the first ingredient we see is commonality. Uh, specifically a common love for the Lord. A second ingredient we see in friendship is strong emotions. You see, you can't really be friends with someone unless you really do love and care about them. And we see that these two men, throughout the course of their friendship, express and show feelings and emotions for one another. In fact, in 2 Samuel, after David learns that Jonathan has died in his lament, he says this, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. And I think some of us hear that sentence and we're like, what? What is he talking about there? And in fact, some have, have used this verse to try to argue that Jonathan and David were homosexual in their relationship. But honestly, that's ridiculous. And I think it even shows just how over-sexualized our culture is. In fact, in response to this accusation, one commentator wrote this. He said, Today's pro-homosexual interpreters claim the text has forced an injustice on gay readers because the true homosexual nature of the relationship has been suppressed both by ancient editors and modern scholars because of homophobia. And so they're saying there that... that you know, ancient scholars and even today uh, scholars have have hidden, they have suppressed the true nature of their friendship or their relationship. But Bill Arnold goes on to say this. Surely, however, it is just as much an injustice to today's heterosexual readers to subvert the obvious face value of the canonical text to deny that David and Jonathan should have had a loving commitment to each other that was non-sexual. Are heterosexual men incapable of such deep and abiding friendships? Such readings rob heterosexual men and deny them the right to have a loving yet non-sexual relationship with other men. 
You see, the reality is, is that people can be, and I would argue should be, close and intimate friends with someone of the same sex, and yet it not be sexual. As I already uh, said, Nick Shiva, who led us in worship, he is one of my best friends. I've cried in front of him multiple times. I've told him I love him probably 10,000 times or more, and I've meant it. We've hugged each other. And yet I can assure you that there is nothing sexual about our friendship and our relationship. Trust me. (laughs) And so again, I, I just want to emphasize and to argue, this is a necessary ingredient in friendship. And so don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid to have strong, intimate emotions with your friends. Another ingredient I think we see in their friendship is selflessness. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 18, there's this scene where Jonathan makes a covenant with David. And in that moment, he takes off his robe and he gives it to David. He, he gives him his armor and his sword and his bow. And the thing that's so shocking and amazing about that scene is that that is essentially Jonathan giving up his right to be the next king of Israel. In fact, when you see them interact throughout the whole book, you see that Jonathan never wavers in his belief that David will be the next king of Israel and not himself. And so Jonathan, we see, sacrifices his right to the throne. But not only that, we see them multiple times Uh, Jonathan puts himself in harm's way in order to vouch for and to speak up for David, his friend. In fact, we see that the second time that he does that, it almost cost him his life. And so Jonathan was willing to sacrifice and to be selfless. But but not only that, another ingredient that's closely related that we see is loyalty. You see, there's this Hebrew word that's repeated multiple times in chapter 20 between David and Jonathan And it's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's typically translated in our Bibles as loving kindness. And really one of the main meanings of the word is is in relation to loyalty. And some have even defined it as it's talking about loyal love. And it's almost uh, always used in the Old Testament to to describe God's love for his people. But here we see it used in the context of Jonathan and David's friendship and their covenants with one another. And so again, another crucial ingredient of friendship is loyalty. It has to be there. That must be part of it. And there are other ingredients that we could talk about, but, but for now, those are the ones that I wanted to focus on. The last uh, uh, thing in friendship that we see here is the impact of friendship. You see how clever I am? I had uh, the importance, the ingredients, now the impact. Three eyes. Just kidding. Um, What we see with their impact from their friendship is a couple things. First, Jonathan and David's friendship served to protect one another. That was one of the impacts. It brought protection. Again, because these men understood the importance of friendship and because they had the right ingredients, when things got hard, when David was in trouble and in need of a friend to look out for him, he had one in Jonathan. Jonathan did whatever it took to protect his friend from his father. And you know, that couldn't have been easy for Jonathan. I'm sure it killed him the day that he had to lie to his father about where David was. I'm sure it broke his heart to have to intercede and and go before his father to plead with him not to kill his friend. But not only that, to have your dad break his promise to you. To have your dad curse you 
and to express disappointment in you. And to, to, to be so angry to the point where he actually tries to take your own life. And, and yet, through all of that, we see that Jonathan keeps protecting. He keeps uh, interceding before his friend. And as a result, Jonathan helped pave the way for David to become Israel's next king. Another impact we see from their friendship is how it affected others. If you remember back to chapter 20, they made this promise and this covenant to one another that, that, um, that David, after he became king, he wouldn't kill Jonathan's children, that he would protect them. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see that David kept that promise, and, and he did it by providing for and caring for Jonathan's crippled son, uh, Methabosheth, or something like that. And uh, you can read that later. It's, it's really a beautiful story. But you, well, the point there is that, that um, David completely changes and he blesses this man's life because of the friendship that he had with his father. And so an impact of our friendship is that even our children can be blessed and impacted by the friendships that you and I have. The last impact that I want to highlight in regards to their friendship is the way in which they helped each other grow spiritually. And this is perhaps the most profound impact of their friendship, and it should be the most profound impact from our friendships. As I mentioned, at the end of 20, Jonathan and David will only see each other one last time before Jonathan dies. And we read about it in chapter 23, and it says this. David saw that Saul... That's so tricky when it's Saul that Saul, but um, anyway. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness at Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose, and he went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. And I just love this passage. I love that, that this is even the last time that they see each other. Here's David fleeing for his life. He's on the run, and yet his friend goes out to meet him. And what does his friend do? What does it say? It says, he strengthened his hand in God. You see, I've already argued that you and I need friends, that it's absolutely essential for our lives. But you don't just need any old friends. You need the right kind of friends. You need friends like Jonathan who are going to point you back to the Lord when you're down, when you're struggling. You need friends who are going to come alongside you and strengthen you and encourage you in the Lord. You need friends who are going to speak words of life to you. You see, having friends who, you know, are fun, who make you happy, who are, you know, make you laugh, that's great. But if they don't strengthen you in the Lord, then they're not the kind of friends that you ultimately need. And you don't just need these kind of friends. You need to be one of these friends to someone else. You need to be the kind of person who strengthens others' hands in the Lord. And so by way of application here, I just want to ask you a few questions. First off, I want you to ask yourself, who am I doing life with? Who in my life really knows me? They know my struggles, my fears, my hopes, and my dreams. Is there anyone that I let in that I'm close to? 
When I get honored or have success, who is there clapping and cheering for me? Conversely, when life has kicked me in the face, who is there to help pick me up and get me back on my feet? When I have slipped and fallen into sin and I'm stuck, who is it there that will call that out in my life and will help keep me accountable? When I need protected, who is it that's standing in the gap for me? When I'm tempted to give up or to give in, who is it that comes alongside of me and strengthens me in the Lord? Do you have someone like that? Now, if no one comes into your mind when you think through those questions, then I think you need to make some changes today. Perhaps a good place to start would just to be to simply ask the Lord, say, Lord, I, I desire this. I desire to have friends like this. As well, Lord, I, help, I pray that you help me to be a friend like this. A practical step that you could take would be to join a life group if you're not in one. You know, for me, most of my closest friendships are with men in my life group. And part of the reason that we are close is because we have made it a priority to spend time together outside of that life group. And so, again, if you don't have friends like this, you, I think, need to make some changes. But not only that. More than anything else, you and I need to have a deep and abiding friendship with Jesus. Uh, Ben, you can go ahead and come on up here. But, um, you know, a few weeks ago, I challenged you guys to read and to meditate on John chapters 14 through 16. And if you did that, you'll remember these amazing words of Jesus in John 15 when he said this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Did you catch that? You and I, if we know, love, and obey Jesus, then he looks back at us and he says, you are my friend. And that friendship has to be the most important thing in your life. You see, I've already argued that you have to have human friendships, and so I'm not taking away from that. But if you live long enough, you will have friends betray you. You will have friends disappoint you. You may even have friends who who, who let you down. But what I want you uh, to know is this, that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There's a friend who will never fail you, who will never leave you, and his name is Jesus Christ. And this friend, Jesus, right before in John 15, 13, said this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, Jesus, like Jonathan, protected and rescued his friends. Not at the risk of his life, though, but at the cost of his life. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and for me because he considered us his friends. And so in a moment, we're going to take some time to celebrate and to remember that amazing act of love by our friend Jesus. And so uh, in a moment, the ushers are going to come down. They're going to release you row by row to come up and take the elements. And I just ask that you grab the cup and the juice and head back to your seat because we want to take it together this morning. We want to represent that we are one body, that we are friends. And so, again, if you could grab them and go back to your seat, I'll come back up and lead us in taking it together. But for now, let me close us in prayer. Lord, thank you that 
your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Thank you that, Lord, in your design for us, you designed us to be in relationships with one another. And I I just want to thank you for that, Lord. I'm so thankful for the friendships I've had throughout the years with brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I just pray for this body here, Lord. If there's some who are in isolation, if there are some who have let this not be a priority in their life, I just pray that today would be a changing point, Lord, that today would be the start of just realizing how important this is. Lord, for those, I just pray you would provide people in their lives, Lord, people who will love them, who will protect them, who will look out for them. Pray that we, Lord, could be those type of friends to others. But Lord, more than anything, I just pray that if there are people here who have not made Jesus their friend, that today would be the day. Today would be the day that they give their lives over to him, that they invite him in. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, I just pray that that we would just continue to grow and go deeper in our friendship with King Jesus. So Lord, we just thank you for the bread and the cup and how they pave the way and what they represent that that we get to be in relationship with you. And so, Lord, bless us as we take these, as we remember, as we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.